Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for July 2nd, 2020, the Open the Damn Schools edition. I am David Plotz of Business Insider. I am in Washington, D.C. Last time in the Heidi Hole, I moved today, so I want to do this show quick, 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 guys, because I got to go get the moving truck. All right? So talk fast, but, but precisely, I am joined from... New Haven, Connecticut, by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine, Yale University Law School. Hello, Emily. Hello, David. Uh, you can be a little more, you know, you can be more expansive than that. Just more because expansive? I said we have you to want quick. more from me this morning? Um, I was just thinking about you moving, and that's such a big deal. I'm very glad to see you in your closet. A new uh, closet awaits. You. A new closet awaits. I don't, I, my new, the closet, my new place, the closets aren't big enough to, uh, to record a podcast, so. I have to find somewhere else. John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes and author of The Hardest Job in the World joins us from somewhere, not his house. He's gone, some, gone somewhere else, but hello, John. Hello, David. Yeah, I've gone somewhere where there are more birds um, for, for a temporary period of time. and uh, But still in the Northeast where COVID is low. Yeah, well, I can't go too far. I have to be <laughs> close to the city, but um, uh, it's lovely to see both of you. The cat is endangering my, my tape recorder again. Cat, come on, cat. On today's Gabfest, John Roberts makes the Roberts Court, his very, very own Roberts Court, with an interesting abortion rights ruling, among other things, and a bunch of other rulings that have dismayed conservatives and sometimes delighted conservatives, but all of which he has played a key role in. And then the COVID catastrophe deepens. We have record cases every day. We have an outbreak sweeping through the South and West. And most importantly, we have literally no plan to deal with the most important issue, which is kids returning to school. We will be joined by the economist Emily Oster to talk about that burgeoning national disaster. Then Trump and the Russian Taliban bounties. What did he know? When did he know it? Why has the administration done nothing about it? Plus, of course, we will have cocktail chatter. The Supreme Court is wrapping up an adventurous and weird term with John Roberts playing the starring role. He's in the majority, I think, in all of the five to four decisions. It's Emily, is crazy. Right? Yeah, Which five to four, amazing. five to three. Yes. Yeah. Is that, um, is that an historic achievement? It's like since the 30s or something. Like he is at the center of the court in a way that has not been seen since I think it's 1937. So bring it. What happened? What's going on with Roberts? How did he emerge as this figure in the center? And I think what's interesting is that uh, he's a centrist figure in some ways in this way. I do not think that Chief Justice John Roberts has become a centrist. 
being at the center of this court, given how far to the right um, half of it is, does not make you at the center of anything in terms of like the Supreme Court's history or tradition or what we think of as, you know, its uh, jurisprudence since the 1960s and the Warren Court. However, it is also true that Roberts casts three votes this term that have made him just um, anathema to conservatives and especially social conservatives. And I'm talking about the DACA case, the LGBT case, and now this um, Louisiana abortion restriction. One way to think about this is that all three of these cases had kind of defective lawyering behind them, and that troubled Roberts, and he wasn't willing to go along with it. So what I'm talking about in the abortion case is that Louisiana passed a law that was identical to one that the Supreme Court struck down four years ago from Texas. And so there was a kind of defiance, both in passing that law and then in the Fifth Circuit, the appeals court upholding it. And when you read Robert's concurrence in June Medical Services, the abortion case, it's very narrow. And a lot of feminists have um, attacked it because it has also kind of um, pulled back on the test for overturning other abortion restrictions that came out of Justice Breyer's decision four years ago. So to back up a step, that case is called Whole Woman's Health. And what Justice Breyer said is that if the court is evaluating an abortion restriction, it should look at the burden it places on women who are seeking an abortion and also consider whether it has any medical benefits. Like basically, is this just there to obstruct or does it achieve something? And Robert said in his concurrence this week, I don't care about the benefits. That part doesn't matter. I'm only going to look at whether an abortion restriction poses a substantial obstacle. So going forward, there's nothing to stop him from upholding a different kind of abortion restriction. And that looks to some people like Melissa Murray at NYU and Linda Greenhouse in The Times uh, this week like a kind of Trojan horse. Another way to think about this, though, a more positive spin which is in a piece by Jeff Tubin and other people have been bandying about, is that Roberts had a chance here to uh, get rid of two of the three existing clinics in Louisiana and strike a blow for the anti-abortion movement, and he didn't take it. And when you read the dissents, which range from kind of furious, like Justice Thomas, to more mild, um, Justice Kavanaugh, you see these various paths that he could have taken and he didn't take. And so Jeff Tubin's response to this is like, look, he had a chance. He's supposed to be a committed social conservative and like abortion uh, clinics live to see another day. So that's the kind of mixed response to this decision and to Roberts and his role. Emily, can you sort through for me the um, analysis that says what Roberts was really doing was taking a stand for precedent? Um, and that what's interesting here is as all the rest of our institutions become totally overloaded with politics and standards are just created in the moment to post hoc um, uh, come up with a rationale for something, he was actually making a stand on precedent and the, the important and necessary part of that in the larger scheme. Is that a, how much of that is a part of what he was deciding? Yeah. I mean, when you read his opinion in the abortion decision, it's big. He starts with the idea of precedent being important. We call it stare decisis is the Latin phrase. And he says, you know, it doesn't always rule the day, but like there's, it has a lot going for it. And four years ago, we uh, struck down this Texas restriction. We're not going to now suddenly turn around and uphold this Louisiana law. And if you think of the very um, 
cynical or realist take on the court, which is just it's all about the personnel, you can see that the idea that um, Kennedy was swapped for Kavanaugh being the distinguishing feature here um, offending Roberts. Like, he doesn't want the idea of, like, the court has a new person and now we just reach a different decision in exactly the same case. Again, that doesn't tell us what he's going to do about future abortion restrictions. What, why was stare decisis uninteresting to the conservative justices? They could have not taken this case. I presume what happened is that four of the conservative justices said we should take this case. Well, because, because, because presumably at the appeals court level, this was this law was struck down no the fifth circuit upheld this law that was the problem it's entirely possible yeah the fifth circuit was like here are all the reasons why louisiana is different from texas and we don't really believe these doctors tried hard enough to get admitting privileges i should have said this law is all about abortion providing doctors being forced to get admitting privileges in hospitals so yes the fifth circuit upheld the law it's entirely possible that it was actually the liberal justices on the supreme court who were like wait a second realize that yeah no but like i'm good to clarify what what is it emily what is this strategy uh, the, the strategy of of the pro-life movement in the recent years has been not so much a frontal assault on roe although i'm sure there there are definitely parts of it that want to do a frontal assault on roe but much more let's gum up the work of abortion let's simply delay and block you know with permissions with speech regulations with sonogram requirements admitting privileges you know your corridors have to be wide enough uh and each each one of these not only it for it forces the abortion clinics to have to fight legal battles, but they you know they they kind of erode and erode and erode. They just make it harder and harder for people to carry about their business. Um, these are folks who generally, in their other political beliefs, don't believe in any government reg- regulation, but believe in this case, let's regulate the speech of of private citizens and doctors, and let's regulate the heck out of these clinics. But that's a separate issue. So. Given that Roberts has signaled, hey, I'm only going to look at undue burden, does this strategy go away or is it just now like it has to take a different form? We have to find they have to find a different place to gum up the works. I think the so you're totally right. I mean, there's basically a split in the anti-abortion movement between the six week bans on abortion, which several states have passed or talked about passing, and these more incremental restrictions, which are generally referred to as trap laws, targeted restrictions on abortion providers. The trap law camp tends to be the lawyers. They're like incremental, chip away. The court doesn't want to have some huge headline. We've overturned Roe versus Wade and abortion is now not constitutionally protected. Let's take smaller steps. This decision struck a blow to that strategy. Now, it's because Roberts left the door open, it's entirely possible that they will still win the day. And it's honestly really up to the Supreme Court which case it takes next, because these challenges are all out there. So what you might hope for if you were an abortion rights supporter is that actually the Supreme Court doesn't take another case for a while because the lower courts abide by this decision and they strike down laws that pose a substantial obstacle. And so there's just nothing for this court to do. And there's no basis in the Supreme Court's jurisprudence for a lower court to uphold a six-week ban. Like, that really is... um, illegal, unconstitutional, whatever you want to call it. And so in some theoretical universe, the Supreme Court just sort of sits quietly and the the lower courts now um, don't do what the Fifth Circuit did and uphold a law like this. 
we'll see. I mean, the problem is that, as I was saying, there's this wiggle room. So one thing I'm really interested in are bans on telemedicine. We're in this moment now with COVID where one way to deal with the problem of access to healthcare is to provide medical abortions, the abortion pills over the phone or in video conference. There's been lots of experimenting with that in the United Kingdom and in Canada. But in America, where you have states that ban telemedicine abortion, you can't cross state lines, or at least it's hard to figure out how to do that with telemedicine providing of abortion. Are those bans going to be upheld? Like that, it's you could imagine that being the next Supreme Court case, though perhaps it would be better for abortion rights if it was not. Is there a federal ban on that? No. Or there's just a state, states ban it? Yeah, it's like 18 or 19 states at this point. John... I want to go to the politics of this because I am confounded about it. Who, if you, in your, in your infinite wisdom, <laughs> who does this help politically? We have seen how much conservatives have been galvanized by court issues. And I think there's a pretty strong case that, that uh, the Supreme Court won Donald Trump the election, that, mm-hmm. that there were a lot of Republicans who were uncomfortable about voting for Trump, but who decided, you know what, I want to make sure that the Supreme Court remains uh, dominated by conservative justices. What do you think this does politically? And is this is this an issue that continues to animate Republicans in the way it did four years ago when there was an open Supreme Court seat or not really? Does it animate liberals even more? Because, in fact, you have several quite old liberal justices and it'd be a shame for liberals if they weren't able Uh to replace them with people sympathetic. I think that, um, and Emily will know this better than I do, but I think in the general, in terms of who's more animated, my feeling is that liberals are more animated because still of the hangover of, of, um, Merrick Garland and, and Trump's election and the notion that the conservatives, this notion has been around for some time, but I think it's, there's a more popularly accepted uh, view of it, which is that the conservatives care a lot more about the court and, and liberals need to care beyond just the hothouse of liberal legal academics and and obsessives, that liberals need to care a lot more about the court because it matters even more in a time of hyper-partisanship where everything gets locked up or where the court's ruling on a lot of things that are done by the administrative power of the president. And we can talk about the decision on Thursday um, uh, about uh, the powers of the president. Um, so, So liberals need to start caring more about it. On the Republican side, I'm I'm interested in in what it means. I think the so the the obsessives on the conservative side are still going to be obsessed by the court because while they may be disappointed in Roberts, part of the disappointment is acting out in order to keep this um, issue in the forefront. I mean, it's a way to raise money. Uh, it's a way to show that you are a hundred percent pure. So when Tom Cotton and and um, Ted Cruz are are fulminating about how John Roberts is this awful person, they're doing a lot of it's a lot of signaling to important constituent groups in the uh, in the conservative movement. So some portion of it may actually be dis- actually be disappointment, but I think there are still people um, who will be um, focusing more than ever on the courts, and so they're fine. I think. The camps of those who voted for Donald Trump because of the Supreme Court, there seems to me to be two different kinds. One is the kind who have abandoned Trump, the voters I talked to who did care about the court in 2016, but now having seen the president and the way he behaves and and worries and concerns about the way he would behave if reelected, the court doesn't swamp that. I think those voters are 
um, are gone. In other words, those were um, newly fe- people who were sort of newly interested in the court, not lifelong Federalist Society people. Those guys are all still uh, on the team, the Trump team. But people who use the Supreme Court to justify their vote, I think that group um, has been is is leaving the president in droves um, because of the way he's been in office. And the court, I don't think, will rescue them into being Trump voters again unless something insane happens um, between now and Election Day. Can I just add one thing, which is that Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, Trump's picks for the court, have performed as true conservatives, with the big exception of Gorsuch's majority opinion in the LGBT case. So especially with Kavanaugh, you see social conservatives and the Federalist Society getting exactly what it wanted. And um, you could see this as super affirming if you care about those reasons. If you are a person who believed Senator Susan Collins of Maine when she said, oh, you know, Kavanaugh is going to respect precedent and not vote to uphold abortion restrictions. Well, that turned out not to be the case. And so I think in that particular Senate race, Kavanaugh, um, the votes he's casting suggest that all of the covering that that Collins was doing for him, like, oh, don't worry, he's going to respect precedent. That is a harder argument to make now. Yes. Now, where it does where it does matter for Collins's reelection is among liberals who will say this is a this is um, who are animated by the court's decisions and the fear of future court decisions will say this is why she's more than just this is why she's actually dangerous. Mitch McConnell can go around to conservatives and say, I know you may not like Susan Collins because she did X, Y and Z. But remember, she got us. She helped us get Kavanaugh. And that really matters. So he's using it. It, from that standpoint, but so those are those are arguments to base level people. I'm trying to think of the people in the middle, and my guess is they're animated by by the other larger um, problem in politics, which for Republicans is that there's a deeply unpopular president. Yeah, I mean, I guess what I basically think is that this term makes it clear that the next appointments matter, and of course that's true. But if Roberts had voted the other way on DACA and abortion then you would have seen, okay, well, there's already this strong conservative five justice majority in these, you know, social hot button cases, except for the LGBT case. And that would look different. I should also say, though, that the court's not done. We have eight decisions remaining for next week. Um, The cases involving um, who has access, Congress or the district attorney in New York to Trump's tax returns, a case about the Obamacare contraceptive mandate and if it um, applies to religious organizations. So there's a lot left. Uh, And I should also say that there were some really important victories this week for conservatives. So the court said that the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which has this... um, provision in it that the director may not be fired without cause. That part of its structure, the court said, in a John Roberts opinion, is unconstitutional. So the agency as a whole does not fall because there was a seven-justice majority for severing that. But this protection that people like Elizabeth Warren tried to put in for the head of the agency to try to buffer that, insulate that person from political pressure, is now gone. And another, you know, huge case this week is um, out of Montana um, saying that states that provide tax credits for private schools have to include religious schools in those kinds of benefits programs. And there is, I mean, this doesn't matter as like law, but there is an incredible (laughs) opinion by Justice Thomas joined by Gorsuch in which Thomas says that 
uh, states can pick a religion and favor it, and that the Establishment Clause, which we all thought applied to the states, does not apply to the states. One of my children, again, when he heard about this, started saying, like, huh, should Connecticut become a Satanist state or a Wiccan state? Like, which one should we choose? So anyway, the court was still having its extremely right-wing moments. Just uh, on the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau case briefly, Emily, just to wrap us up, is the theory of the unitary executive now dominant and and prevailing? Because I, it's so unfathomable to me that anyone could look at the government we have, especially in the president we have, and think that, wow, what we really need is to invest more power in the executive and less in somewhat independent experts. It's just perplexing to me that that would be the legal conclusion you would you would reach after looking at the actual functioning government. The only functioning government uh, agency that we have is the Federal Reserve. The only one that's working well is the Federal Reserve. And it's working because it's basically staffed by experts and it's somewhat protected from politics. Yes, I think that is an excellent observation. And we are seeing from the court this year and last this kind of march toward more power for the presidency um, and less tolerance or interest in these alternative forms of um, federal authority that are more insulated from politics and outside of the president's immediate grasp. You know, the court, the justices who are going in this direction would say, well, that's just what the Constitution mandates. And if you don't like it, go change the Constitution. But I would argue, as the liberal justices have, that there's a lot more wiggle room here. And this is not really a healthy development for our democracy. I mean, this is part of the reason I started the book with the protests in Washington over the Reorganization Act in 1937, which is there was a time when even the suggestion. Well, it's also because, John, that's all anyone ever talked about. Well, sure. I mean, that's all. (laughs) But it's. I mean, those protests, 68, Black Lives Matter, (laughs) they are all like they're just like run together in people's heads. The, the, and, and, and plus, anytime anybody can dress up as Paul Revere, um, it's a reason to. But I mean, just the, the, the way in which power has shifted, the idea that it was a move of dictatorship for a president to ask for any help at all in the, in the um, running of his office. Um, now, this is, we have completely come to the other side of that. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. We also really appreciate your membership. It is a time when Slate is doing really important and valuable work in journalism. And Slate, like so many other great institutions and media, has had trouble because advertising is down and reader support and listener support is is a growing and important source of revenue for Slate. And you can Express your support if you're able to do it by becoming a Slate Plus member today. If you go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus, you can join. We would really appreciate it. And uh, in appreciation, we will talk about something interesting. And the thing we're going to talk about today in our Slate Plus segment is a John Dickerson topic. I think John was stoned when he suggested it. (laughs) And we will discover if he is stoned when he discusses it. It is, should we teach history backwards? I don't have any idea what it means. I'm really looking forward to this discussion because I sat down to think about it last night. I was like, I don't know what John's talking about, so I can't wait to hear him talk about it. Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member and listen to that bonus segment. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just gonna circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, Slate listeners. I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. The COVID pandemic has continued to spread appallingly with new infections topping 50,000 per day, mostly across the South and West. Republican leaders who had been scoffing at masks are now urging Americans to wear them, although Trump isn't. And meanwhile, meanwhile, the country is facing an appalling prospect, which is no real school in the fall. We are joined to talk about the school COVID crisis with Emily Oster, who's a professor of economics at Brown. She's also the author of the beloved book, Crib Sheet, a data-driven guide to better, more relaxed parenting from birth to preschool. Emily, welcome to the GabFest. I want to start with this fact. There are 32 million American households with school-aged children, 50 million kids in public schools, and then another handful of millions in private schools. There is no economic recovery without kids in school. You cannot send people back to work without a plan for schools. And yet, here we are. Yeah. Getting kids out of uh, our houses and into their schools is like probably the most important thing that we're going to need to do in the fall to get parents back to work. And yet, I don't see much in the way of uh, efforts to, to try to do that. I mean, there are efforts, but I don't think that they are coming to fruition fast enough. To me, what is so upsetting about all of this is how low a priority kids have been. And yes, it's important for parents returning to the workforce. It's also just really important for children. And one of the things that's been so valuable to me about following you on Twitter is I feel like you figured out a way to talk about that from the beginning at a time in which there was a lot of shaming of anyone liberal-ish for thinking of anything involving reopening. Now we're starting to see from the American Academy of Pediatrics exactly the kind of balancing of harms that I think, I mean, I certainly wanted from the beginning and thinking that we cannot make going back to school a perfectly zero risk for COVID transmission, but what we've learned about kids and um their level of risk, the risk they present to other people suggests that sending them back to school is really worth the potential cost. And I wonder how you think about that like trajectory from the beginning of the crisis until now. 
early on, there was this feeling of like, in order to be a good person about this, you have to just stay in your house and not leave and not leave at all. And and there were some reasons, I think, to, to do that, to try to arrest the, the pandemic. But it evolved into a kind of shaming space in some sense where suggesting that there might be something to think about other than not having people acquire COVID meant that you were not taking the viral risk seriously. What I started trying to do a little, I think people are now doing a bit a bit more of, is to say, you know, hey, actually when kids aren't in school, there are some things that happen that are that are bad. So for example, a lot of kids don't learn. And those kids are the kids that we are most worried about. Those are you know, low-income students, students of color who are like disproportionately falling behind on learning as a result of not being in school there if they don't have good internet if they don't have you know good supervision because it's a complicated thing to to supervise um, and you know their lives are more um, are, are more unstable these are all reasons that kids are being hurt by not being in school there's even some very basic stuff like food right so at some point early on somebody pointed out hey a lot of kids are getting food from the school lunch program and you know a lot more kids are reporting being hungry now than they than they were before and I think that that we need to recognize those things on the other side of the coin, because if we don't, then it feels like, well, we're going to open schools. Oh, just so everyone can get the coronavirus. Like, no, no, we're not. It's not just to give people the coronavirus. It's because there's good reasons to open schools that is important for children and for their parents and for, for everybody else. Can, actually, Emily, can you dig into this, uh, this sort of lost learning question? Because I think this is a, this is a thing where you, your, your future, you, your future, your future child, um, is important to understand because it's not like people say, oh, they can miss it. You know, you miss a year of school. It's okay. They'll make it. If you miss a year of school, what happens to you later? If you miss a year of school, what happens to you later is that you are less likely to complete high school. You're less likely to complete college. You're going to make less money later. You are going to die sooner. You are going to be more at risk for illness later. So even if we said our goal is to have people be healthy, right. it is still not obvious that right. you know, there are still losses to not to not being in school. And I think that's kind of like the the piece. And you somebody said something this morning on Twitter. They said, you know, I um, you know, should people really have to get COVID so your kid can learn algebra? And you know, it's like, well, first of all, I don't I think that you're, you know, you're misunderstanding like where people are in terms of their of their their learning and what is being lost here. But also you could equally well say, you know, should this kid have to die sooner or later? So somebody else doesn't get sick now. I mean, that's the trade-off that we're talking about. It feels like, Emily, there, were the, there was a problem, and there continues in, to be a problem with um, what the timelines were on. Because, because when during the, the, the major lockdown portion, everybody was focused on that, and we didn't quite have a handle on the disease as much. But, but what you were arguing and others were arguing it was, okay, we may have to do what we have to do today, but come the fall, which is many, many months away, we need to start planning and thinking about this because what school-age children seem to me hit on here, and college age is a little different, though I'm interested in your ideas on that too, is that it's this marrying up. It's both the liberal concern about children and their psychological health, but then there's also the economic piece that David pointed out, which is the economy doesn't get started again unless people feel confident enough to send their kids back to school and so everybody could have been agreed that let's shoot for four months from now policies that make this happen and that there was just a total failure of future thinking on this crucial issue, which both sides 
care about, maybe for different reasons, but which could have been the basis for actual long term thinking. Yeah, I mean, I think that there was a there was a, a moment of of opportunity there and a, a place that we could have come together because, as you say, I think this is something basically everybody everybody wants. Maybe not all for the same reasons, um, but I think that somehow what happened is that when one person started to say we should do this because of the economy, there was automatically the kind of back reaction of oh well because because you want people to die, and then when people said you know we well, we you know we only you only care about health, you don't care about this. And it, somehow that got very politicized in a way that I think meant that we were not thinking about all the pieces together. And I, and like everything in this conversation, there are trade-offs. I think somehow we've gotten to a place where people would like to have no coronavirus. I would like to have no corona. We would all like to have no coronavirus. But the fact is, we're going to need to move forward with the recognition that we're in the middle of a, of a viral pandemic, and that's going to mean the first best is really not available. So what do you think is going to happen? I mean, and is this just an impossible question to give a national answer for? So there are some states, including my state of Connecticut, where there are some guidelines emerging, but also a lot of deference to individual school districts to make decisions. There are other states or districts that have already announced we're only doing two days a week of school. Um, I don't know. Maybe there are places that have already decided school is going to be entirely remote. Um, are you just seeing this patchwork across the country? And do you think that there, I mean, we still have two months left, right? Or at least two months till September. Like, is there enough time to get more school into place? And what do you see as the substantial obstacles? The substantial obstacles are that I think many places have decided to just say we're opening and it's, you know, it's, it's going to, it'll be, it'll be great. And I, you say we have two months, but actually a lot of places are opening like August 3rd. So in Florida, which is not doing great, uh, they basically said schools open August 10th and everyone will be back in school August 10th. Um, and I don't, you know, the, like what that's going to look like, I have, I have no idea. What I worry about is some of those early openings will be kind of very chaotic and and maybe will happen in places like Florida, which are having large outbreaks. And then, you know, a lot of bad things are going to happen. And that's going to mean that, that other places maybe which were in a position to be more thoughtful um, and maybe in a better viral position to open will will kind of pull back on those on those plans. So I think that's a little bit hard to predict. My guess is we will see, like we have with everything else, just a huge variety of what different states do, some of which will be better organized than others. Do do you think uh, there's a obvious list of things to do? I mean, I've seen Michelle Goldberg's column in the in the Times had some of these things, but it was, you know, hiring a whole bunch of aides so you can break up into little pods. It was leasing a ton more classroom space so that you can distribute the kids uh, more broadly. It was thinking about outdoor classrooms. Mostly it was just this idea, oh, we need kind of a Manhattan project for schools because it's the most urgent issue we have. But do you think there's there's sort of like, here are the three things that we should probably try that would get us 70% of the way? So I think the first thing is is all of these things that we're going to need to do are going to have to focus around the resistance and the risks to, to teachers and staff. So I think early on in this, we spent a lot of time talking about kids and kids and kids and let's worry about kids, which we should. We should worry about kids. But I think increasingly the evidence suggests that kids are not actually the, the are actually quite a low risk group. When we think about schools reopening, 
I would like people to start focusing on how we are going to protect teachers and other staff, but also how we're going to convince them to come to school. How are we going to get teachers to be willing to be back in the classrooms to feel safe enough to do that and to be bought into the to the fact that actually this is something that that we need to do as a society so we can serve like vulnerable people and and so we can move forward. So I would like to see us thinking about things like, you know, routine testing for teachers. Um, I, we can't do routine testing for everybody. It's too expensive. It's not, it's not widely enough available, but I don't think it's insane to do it for teachers. And I think the other really obvious thing is to just try to get people to not come to school when they're sick. I mean, that seems like totally uh, tra- transparent perhaps. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of people uh, go to school like a little bit sick. Um, and particularly since kids tend to have mild viral infections, we, we need to make sure that people are keeping their kids home. That's the main thing I would ask my kids' school that I will ask my kids' school. What about um, letting high-risk teachers teach remotely and concentrate on the kids who live with grandparents or themselves have health conditions that might make them more vulnerable? Because I feel like these higher-risk, you know, older teachers or teachers who have the conditions that make you more susceptible are really being put into a tough position. I guess I really like that. I hadn't thought about that, but I like the thing that, is, that I think is very creative about the idea is the idea of matching to basically say there are some kids who aren't going to be able to come back for either their own reasons or for family reasons and some teachers who can't, who can't come back. So let's match those people up. That is, I, I like that, Emily. Um, but I think that's also an example of the kind of thing that I don't think we're thinking about, right? So instead people are saying, okay, well, if there's a high-risk teacher, let's just zoom them into their classroom as if they were their regular. And if we have a high-risk kid, let's just zoom them into their classroom. But that's like, we just have to try to do exactly the thing we did before. Instead of saying we're in a different situation, let's try to think about how we can use our resources and reallocate our resources to make this possible even though the situation is going to be very different. I mean, also the the point to make is like, if your teacher is remote, that's still remote learning. It's not quite as catastrophic for family life to have your child at school remote learning, but it's still the it's still a really shitty, bad, misbegotten educational experience. And so you don't want teachers zooming into classrooms. If well, you can avoid if it. you can avoid it. And yeah, also I mean, it depends on the age of the kids, too. Like yeah. how much? I think it depends on the age of the kids, but I also think we don't want to. I don't want to like understate the importance of physically having kids at school. I think this this gets into some of what Michelle was suggesting, you know, there with kind of aids and you know, actually having kids working on laptops in a place where they're supervised by somebody, even if it's a relatively low, you know, low level person, that actually is delivering some of the benefits of of school. You know, if they're going to do like online learning, but at least they have good internet connection, and at least they have somebody you know who can help. Help them with their fractions if they get if they get stuck. I think that's pretty um, that that is that's not as good as regular school, but it's it's better than being at home by yourself. Right, and you get the benefits of socialization. And um, so, Emily, as you think through the economic effects of this, there's um, what do you think about? I mean, so it's obviously getting the kids out of the house so the parents can do work or even physically go to work. But then also, is there a psychological piece? which is if if schools are open and it feels like as a society we've managed enough to be able to get the kids into the school that can you talk a little bit about the psychological piece that's going to be required to get economic activity going again because um people have to feel a certain level of um safety to 
feel like they can plan and they can think in the future about their economic behavior. Um, just how do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think for many people with children, school, the routine of school, that is what is delivering a sense of normalcy and a sense that you are kind of having your regular life. Once we have that, I think it will be easier for people to think about other aspects of their life that they're that they're trying to move, um, you know, trying to move to move forward on. There's going to be a lot of variation in in the kinds of reopening that we that we want to do, and so I think there's a there's a kind of downside to what you say, which is once we get our kids back in school, maybe we're just going to feel like we can kind of do everything just just exactly the same. Um, and you know, I think that's not there's there's many activities which are riskier than sending your kids to school notably bars, um, but also other things. We're all going to sort of stumble towards normalcy um, normalcy a little bit. I mean, it seems like part of what we're talking about is that individuals have like risk budgets and communities also have risk budgets. And this week, the conversation about school turned into close the bars, open the schools, um, which I actually thought was sort of useful just in terms of thinking of priorities. And I do worry that some states and cities are spending their risk budgets on bars. And then as the numbers go up, making schools look impossible to open in the fall. And it seems like these are choices that are local or state specific since we have no federal leadership and there's this vacuum of federal authority. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the other thing that's happened is, so, you know, for example, um, people are, you know, Texas has, has reopened a lot um, and a lot of people are becoming sick um, and they are becoming sick in a variety of settings, probably some of which are bars. And then they're publishing data on, you know, some people who work at childcare centers have, have COVID. Of course, some people who work at childcare centers have COVID. Because there's they, so much community spread. Right, exactly. <laughs> so some people who work at all jobs have, have COVID. And so, but then, it, you know, people get very, very scared. That's going to happen in in sort of school settings as as well but i think we're sort of seeing there like you're kind of punishing you're making people feel like well this is a really unsafe thing to do but in fact what happened is you used as you said you used your risk budget to t- make a lot of other choices and that kind of made this less safe in the sense that now your kids more likely to be in daycare with a teacher who's uh who who has covid but not because of the daycare but because of these other choices that you that you made I mean, on the budget, I know risk budget is a different sort of budget, but one of the other issues we have here is that money, real uh, budget, education is funded at a local level and local governments are completely hosed right now. And it's not easy. I mean, the federal government could step in in the way they have with small businesses and provide and should billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars. But that because local governments are so strapped, what they are ending up with is these terrible trade-offs and choices. And one of them is not, let's double our the size of our classrooms or let's hire a thousand new aides for our school district because that that, that is just not tenable for a local government budget right now. And that's, that's a problem of how we fund schools. Yeah. And I think this is, you know, I mean, one of the things I said and something I wrote recently was like, we're like, we're, we're the foundations here. Like what, you know, unfortunately, I don't think we can rely on governments to, to do this because they don't have the local governments have no money and the federal government doesn't seem to think that this is a priority. Um, and we're going to need money to come from somewhere from somewhere else. Oh, I'm not willing to give up on the federal government and Congress. I just feel like it's their responsibility. I love your optimism. <laughs> Thank you. You could feel like that, but I don't think they're coming for you. But maybe. Yeah. 
So, Emily, one thing we've seen in some European countries and in Israel is that the schools open and then there are cases of COVID and they have to shut again. What do you think should be the planning in the United States? Should we have a rule where if there's one case of COVID, the school closes? Or do we need to have more tolerance than that um, in order to make this happen realistically? Yeah, I think we're going to need to have more tolerance than that. Um, And I think individual places are going to need to think about, you know, what is their level of tolerance? And I think we want to be thinking about clusters rather than cases. So if there's a case, there's two cases, you know, three cases that may be if you start having a lot of spread or like large clusters, then we're going to need to shut down for a while. But I think the most important thing is to have an ex-ante plan for that is for places to say, this is what we're going to do if there's one case, this is what we're going to do if there's two, you know, this is our threshold. That's the piece that we need to outline in advance, not in a kind of panicked moment where we've assumed there won't be any cases. And then it's like, oh my gosh, we have a case, we have to do something. Like we need to, to anticipate that and have a concrete plan. Emily Oster, thanks for joining us. Emily is a professor of economics at Brown University and also a great Twitter follow. I also want to put in a plug for her second book called Expecting Better, which our researcher Bridget Dunlap particularly flagged for us. Thank you guys for having me. Trump, the Russians, the Taliban, bounties. There's evidence that's been reported in the New York Times and elsewhere from the intelligence community that Russia has been attempting to disrupt our war in Afghanistan by paying bounties to the Taliban for the murder of American and other coalition troops. This evidence comes from interrogations, also from financial transfers. Uh, The Times on Thursday seems to have even identified a person who they say is an intermediary whose bank account was suddenly flush, who may have been a person paying off Taliban uh, who had succeeded in, in performing acts of violence against coalition forces. There, there, are indications that particular killings of Americans may have been tied to these bounties. Um, the issue that we're going to discuss is not really whether it's not really the fact that Russia is doing this. Um, Russia is an enemy of the United States in many ways. It's engaged in geopolitical conflict with us. The uh, Afghanistan has been a theater of that conflict for 50 years. In 1970s and 1980s, the United States was arming uh people who are now Taliban to fight the Russians. And, and uh, so there's, there's a lot of the same things have been going on for many years. The issue is how is it that the president of the United States seems either not to have known about this, known about it and done nothing about it, or, uh, or even sort of completely looked away and tried not to know about it. And it's pretty shocking. So John, I want to start with you. What do you, what do we what do we know at the moment? Keeping in mind this is all under the kind of veil of secrecy, which covers so much of what we do militarily. Um, what do we know about what the president might or might not have known about these bounties? Well, and and you're so right to um, talk about the veil of secrecy because. We know, I mean, two big things that should be asterisks. Well, there are three things that are big asterisks around the story. The first is that we have an unprecedented situation in which um, the intelligence briefers don't trust the president, the president doesn't, doesn't trust them, and that this is a constant source of conversation in public in which the president has repeatedly undermined the, the credibility and veracity of his intelligence operatives, unlike any other president before. And so we have lots of reason to distrust um, basically everything we hear, it, 
A, if you're a supporter of the president, because he's taught you to, and B, if you're skeptical of the president, because there's so many instances in which the president has been at odds with his briefers and been on been and been wrong. So that's the overarching problem. Then even if you had a normal uh, functioning White House, you'd have the problem that a lot of this covert stuff, which I've recently had some association with, of something that happened in the past. And I went now that I know, having interviewed people involved in it, I look at the coverage at the time, and it's directly the opposite of what was happening, in part because the agency was was leaking stories to cover up what was really happening with the total opposite of what was happening. So I, so as I look at it, I'm not talking about the, the facts of the case here, but it's always in these kinds of stories, you know, l- likely to be some big piece of it is missing. So this is really hard. But what we have is a situation with um, uh, an idiosyncratic president who gets briefings verbally and, and, and by all accounts, numerous multiple constant accounts, including most recently from, um, from John Bolton, doesn't really pay that much attention, spends his time talking instead of listening, um, doesn't read the material, prefers verbal briefings. FDR did too. That's okay. More complicated world now, of course, than it was for FDR, but never mind. Um, I don't know, man. I mean, FDR was fighting the Nazis. He was trying to win World War II. That's pretty complicated. True enough. True enough. But he didn't, you have today, you have cyber, different kinds of terrorism, um, and you have uh, North Korea, which has old fashioned conventional weaponry. So FDR had one big target to worry about, and it was relatively slow moving. This is all, you know, super hyper fast and can cripple the global economy in a second if something goes wrong. So it's a lot of, there's there's just more on the to-do list. But but anyway, I guess what, what strikes me is that you basically had a situation here, there was another option that you could have included on your list, which is that intelligence briefers didn't tell the president because the president's involvement would be a net reduction in American safety. That either he would do something to get in the way of what they were trying to do, or having told him he would do not he would do nothing, and therefore they couldn't move forward because they would then be contravening the president, as opposed to just acting independently. There's obviously, and then I'll shut up, a disconnect between what we're hearing in the way they talk about what happened here, and what the Times has reported, which is not only I mean the Times has basically all the different verification methods used by the intelligence community to um, follow this trail of evidence. There's the half a million dollars in cash. Then there's the actual paper trail of the wire transfers, which demonstrate the cash. They know the name of the guy, the the sort of... um, the the bad actor in Afghanistan who is distributing the cash. Like, it seems like they've, the Times has it pretty wired, which makes the administration claims that this was all unverified um, seem, seem hollow. Yeah, I mean, it was briefed to the British. It was published in a CIA kind of internal report. Uh, the, yeah, so it's either you have a president who was told, forgot, they didn't tell him because they were afraid of his reaction, they were afraid it would trigger him in some way, or they didn't tell him because he, they thought it would be, as you say, a net reduction in American safety. And I, and I, I think it's important to couple this story with the remarkable um, Carl Bernstein story in CNN this week about the president's phone calls with other world leaders. This is a, you know, a very hearsay kind of story that Bernstein reported, but it's got a lot of sources and and um, it it essentially says that Trump has all these calls with world leaders and he doesn't prepare at all for them. He talks endlessly and 
he says things like, you know, tells Angela Merkel, who's manifestly one of the smartest people in the world, that she's stupid and also uh, also gets played and gulled by Erdogan and Putin and others who who know how to push his buttons and how to get him to 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 kind of come to their side. Emily, I think the, the, the frame for me is if you had a colleague, if you had a boss that behaved like Trump did, who didn't do the didn't prep, got on the phone with your biggest partners and called them stupid, got on the phone with your your the, the companies you're competing with and, you know, got buddy buddy with them and got played by them and, you know, was presented with an absolute life and death issue where the, you know, people under people, the workers for for his organization are being murdered. And does nothing about it, doesn't bother to know, or that his own deputies don't want to tell him because they don't think he'll do anything about it. Like, that's a completely unacceptable behavior for somebody who runs anything in the world. Any other person who ran something would have been fired and been sued by shareholders and, you know, probably prosecuted for behavior like this. It's shocking. (laughs) The other thing about this story that gets me is like, okay, so now we see the breadcrumbs and it really looks like the Russians paid this bounty to the Taliban to kill our soldiers. And Trump still isn't responding in any proportionate sense to it, right? Like, we still, as far as I know, have invited Putin to the G8. Like, it's all public, and there still are no repercussions. And I um, just don't want to forget that part of this, because there's both this question of, like, what he knew, what should he have known, and the kind of um, dereliction of duty you're talking about, but also, like, this ongoing question of, like, okay, so there are no consequences and and Putin is still going to be our honored guest. Like, how come? And it's not just and the, I mean, this Taliban one is sort of hidden in secret. We also have all the stuff that we know publicly that we've seen publicly, which is Russian jets testing American air defenses, clear Russians interference in the run up to the election. There are huge cyber attacks on Americans, which are coming from Russia. So it is it's not even just that this is one sole example of Russia meddling in something happening in Afghanistan. I mean in Afghanistan everyone's always meddling here and there, but it's that Russia is engaged in a kind of massive campaign and and as Susan Rice put it in a in a I think a Times op-ed, like why does Trump always put Russia first? Like why does he give them the benefit of the doubt? Why does he credit them? Why does he do nothing when there's this you know drumbeat of Russian malfeasance directed at America. You know, going back, David, to your point about the CNN report on how he behaves on foreign leader phone calls, as you say, the piece has some uh, has some elasticity in the waistband on on the sourcing. However, there is nothing in the account of those phone calls that it is that is at all at odds with our public perception of the president. You know, if this were a functioning White House, I you can make a case, um, and and I do that um, that that having a very high threshold for information you raise to the presidential level makes sense if everybody's agreed that this is the way you're going to run the show, and everybody at the various levels is competent and acting on the basis of facts and information and reason and not 
impulsivity that you want basically because a president is constantly uh, overwhelmed um, and needs to focus on other important things. You want to wait to tell and bring this to the president at the moment. They need a presidential decision or, you know, there may be other things at play that that too often we think about the president as a case officer, uh, as one former deputy director of the CIA put it. And instead, you should think of them more as the sort of chairman of the board. I'm not saying in this particular instance, I'm just trying to to, to pull it out a little bit and say there is a you can make a case for raising the threshold in a fully functioning White House. That's not what we're seeing in this case. Sure. Yeah, definitely. You could definitely make that argument. But where does this leave us, Emily? Like what you know, we we have a a Congress that doesn't seem to be willing to hold the president to account for this. You have quite possibly there are American soldiers that soldiers that the president sends off to war his his most sacred duty we're always told is to be the commander in chief and to and to uh you know look out for the national security interests of the united states and to look out for the health and safety of these americans who bravely are serving to protect the the national security of the united states and a president who who's who's kind of looking awayness or whose indifference or whose ignorance may have just sort of cost the lives uh, and emboldened our enemies with Benghazi, we went through, I can't even remember, 37,000 rounds of hearings about those deaths. And there was no sense of maliciousness or malevolence on the part of the Hillary Clinton or on the part of the Obama administration there. I don't think anyone even accused them of that. They accused them of incompetence. Here we have a we have something which looks much worse, and we have a a president who appears indifferent to it. And yet, what will happen? Nothing will happen, right? Well, it leaves us with an election in November. I mean, that's the remedy that the American people have. It can't be the only remedy. It can't be. There has to be other remedies. I mean, that's why why we have a... That's why Congress exists. That's why the Senate exists. That's why, you know, there should be generals resigning over this. I mean, I think the House could hold hearings. The House has been trying to stick up for its prerogatives. Um, but when you have senators, um, Republican senators, so willing to take the president's line, th- there is no unified congressional response that really provides a remedy. Let's go to cocktail chatter. John, when you're ignoring the Dickerson daily briefing and instead sitting and having a drink with your family, what are you going to chatter about with them? <laughs> I, I tried to chatter about this with my family in a car ride um, where they could get not out of the car. Um, and therefore, we're in a captive audience. And they Wait, st- are you are you're tell, you're about to give us a chatter that your family wouldn't listen to in a car? My, my family you're expecting us to pay attention. Uh, yes, because my oh. family wouldn't listen to me um, basically uh, uh, on any account. Um, so I, but I'm just saying um, that, that, that this is more than just something that I am prospectively going to roll out. It, it's been it's been field tested and and failed. But damn them, I'm going to plow ahead anyway. It's a mental flaws piece by um, uh, on Madeline Langle by Jen Dahl is the writer. And it, the headline is How a Wrinkle in Time Changed Sci-Fi Forever. It's basically a piece about Madeline Langle and the, um, it's very well written, and, and just the, the pounding she took from publishers who just repeatedly turned her down and the very lumpy reception that A Wrinkle in Time received. Um, and yet, um, and yet. She, 
Yeah. She persisted. And yet she persisted. Exactly. Um, there's a great line in it when, when she gets turned down at one of the many times where it's, where it says the blow felt like an obvious sign from heaven, an unmistakable command, stop this foolishness and learn to make cherry pie. That's a quote from, um, the, the Crosswicks journals, which are Lengel's journals, um, that are just great to, you can either read them or you can listen to the, um, audio books. You know, they're just about the creative process and uncertainty and doubt and perseverance, all things that I enjoy. Emily, when you're ignoring the Bazelon daily briefing, what will you be chattering about? <laughs> I try to ignore that briefing as much as possible. So I'm um, obsessed with uh, the prospects, the importance of a free and fair election in November and thus was dismayed in the last week by a couple of stories out of Wisconsin. So, um, first of all, there is um, a troubling leadership hole in the election commission in the city of Milwaukee, a city that is important for the swing state of Wisconsin. The well-regarded um, head of the election commission, Neil Albrecht, stepped down. His successor, whose name is Claire Woodall Vogg, was supposed to take over, but ended up withdrawing after her appointment got snarled in some kind of... Um, it looks like power struggle between the mayor and the city council in Milwaukee. Milwaukee needs to have a fully functioning election commission. We just had, Wisconsin had in April a disastrous primary, as listeners may remember, because I'm sure I went on about it at length with terrible lines at the polls during COVID and thousands of absentee ballots that were not delivered um, in time for people to vote. So, Please, Milwaukee, get it together so your folks are enfranchised. And then also in Wisconsin, the Federal Court of Appeals, the Seventh Circuit, issued a ruling about a bunch of challenges to Wisconsin voting restrictions and ruled in most cases that these voting restrictions were okay. This is a ruling that took three years, which is really weird. I have not heard an explanation for why it took so long. It's from um, Judge Frank Easterbrook, who basically said, you know what, like these things are constitutional. The plaintiffs didn't prove that black voters were being targeted for disenfranchisement. So, um, Wisconsin can do things like pull back on early voting and not send absentee ballots by fax or email to certain people who can't get them in the mail. None of this bodes especially well for lots of access to the ballot in Wisconsin in November, which is very important. Emily, remind me of this. So it is very clear you couldn't you you can no longer, although you could in this country for a long time, you could not set up a system which said if you are a black person, uh, you can't vote uh, or you have to only vote at Sunday at 930 p.m. in this one location 500 miles from your house. You can't do that. You right? mean if you're a if black it, person like we have the you, Voting Rights Act? Yeah, yes. Yeah. But could you say Demo only Democrats like could you could you make a law which 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 explicitly targeted Democrats like Democrats? You can only do blank. I would like to think that would go too far, but you're right that the Supreme Court has said it's okay to redraw district lines to gerrymander based on political preference as opposed to 
uh, for the purpose of diluting the influence of black or Latino voters. So that does, I suppose, open up the idea that you could explicitly discriminate against Democrats in such a fashion. I think, though, that what happens instead is you just like close a bunch of polling places in Democratic cities as the state election commission. And then it becomes hard to prove that you're deliberately targeting black and Latino voters as opposed to Democrats. And I mean, that has happened. Like we see a pattern across the South in particular of disproportionate closure and limiting of hours at polling places that affect um, largely urban, mostly Democratic areas that also tend to have a lot of black and Latino voters. I saw some statistic, and you probably know this, that if you're black or Latino, you wait online 45 minutes longer to vote than if you're white. Yeah, I don't know if that's a national stat, but I think that is true in certain parts of the country, or at least, I'm not sure about the 45 minutes, but like the the longer wait, yes, I have seen that study too. Yeah, which is is shameful. That's what that is. Uh, My chatter is, I have fallen into a television show, which I had not heard of until this week, called Call My Agent, which is a French show. It's a French show, and it's about a talent agency in Paris that represents top uh, French actors and singers. And it's about the, the four agents who run the agency. It's very charming and funny it has a apparently has a lot of famous french actors playing themselves in the show but since i don't know any french actors that these people who are being represented on screen who to french audiences will be as familiar as you know i don't know as maybe not george clooney as ryan as familiar as ryan reynolds uh are unfamiliar to me but it's a the show is it's just like super charming and fun my french is really rusty so it's very nice to listen to a lot of french too so if you're a french someone who wants to hear something in french the it's fun just to listen to people speaking french um beautiful hilarious quick uh not taxing at all Ooh, that sounds so good is it as good yeah. as the Dairy Girls, my very favorite David Plotz television recommendation, which I really would like a new season of Dairy Girls producers? I know, I know. Dairy <laughs> Girls producers. I think one of the, the number one Google searches in certain uh, demographics is, is there another a new season of Dairy oh Girls? Oh my yet? God. The, the idea that like COVID would be so lightened by one more season of the Dairy Girls. By the uh, way, have I boosted Money Heist? Um Oh, is that good? I've I've, is, I, I've been it tempted is. to watch it. Yes, it is very good. Um, and if you want to brush up on your Spanish, so you can you can do that with that. Um, it um, it's very good. It's uh, you know the tension is high. So so uh, we sometimes ha- we sometimes decide whether or not to watch an episode based on how close we are um, to going to sleep because it oh. uh, it can rally you up a little. Right. Um, but another quick chatter is just I asked last week for moving advice. As I said, I'm moving today. You guys came through. I've never gotten so much response to a chatter ever. I got so many emails from you all with excellent moving advice. So many, in fact, that I think what I will eventually do is I will once I have gotten through this move, which is just so difficult and long lasting. Once I've gotten through this move, I will consolidate all of your advice and publish it Um and so that other people can get useful moving advice because there were so many helpful things. Man, you guys have a lot of advice about art. GabFest listeners apparently own a lot of art, move a lot of art all the time, rehang their art. I'm jealous. There's a lot of art advice. Yeah. Did you find the number of submissions uh, emotionally powerful and therefore moving? 
Yes. Well, I just, it, it was interesting. It's that so many, I think it is moving is one of those experiences that most people go through. It is difficult for you, no matter when you do it, at what point you do it. And so, uh, people really want to, they want to share their lessons learned. They yeah. want, they want other people not to suffer as much or to, to, uh, in fact, get some pleasure out of the experience. I'm so glad you're going to publish it because I could really use that advice for our next move whenever that is, which probably won't be in the too distant future. I mean, just across the city. We're not moving anywhere. It's such an exhausting, it like rings you out moving. Uh, Listeners, you also have sent us great chatters in addition to great moving advice. You've tweeted them to us at Slate Gabfest. Mercy for that. Merci. Come on. Merci you beaucoup. could do better than that. Mercy Boku. Most of, most, of, I was, most of what they say is like, Mer putain, connard. <laughs> connard. <laughs> connard. <laughs> Which is a, some kind of vile insult, but I've forgotten what it, what it actually uh, Don't means. ask me. Uh, and there's actually, well, forget it. <laughs> I won't even get into the French a bit. Uh, so the great... Uh, Listener chatter I want to cite this week comes from Randy Cohn at Noonan66. And it is a a quote tweet of a Twitter thread from Matthew Rosenberg, who told a Carl Reiner story. Oh, my God. I love this thread. I am so glad we are talking about it. It was amazing. Yeah. It's an amazing thread. It's about, um, it's about Matthew Rosenberg's father's encounter with Carl Reiner, the, the comedic legend who died this week. And then ultimately his encounter with Carl Reiner, Carl Reiner, Mel Brooks, and Sid Caesar. It's an amazing story. So just check out the Twitter thread. We will link to it. If you enjoy the GapFest, please subscribe. That way you'll get new episodes the second they are published. That is our show for today. The GapFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. A magnificent team of Frank and Dunlap. Our researchers, Bridget Dunlap, Gabriel Roth. Is the editorial director, June Thomas, managing producer, Alicia Montgomery, executive producer of the Slate Podcast Empire. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I am David Plotz. Thank you for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. Comment ça va? Uh, so... John, I'm just going to hand this over to John. John, 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 every like every two days, John sends an email being like, <laughs> we have to do a Slate Plus segment where we what, what would happen if we taught history backwards? And and I just don't understand what's going on in no, the Dickerson that, brain. So, <laughs> so just take it away. <clears throat> no, the idea here would be, do we, um, well, I guess it's, it came to me in two different ways. One is that that in American history classes, Everybody starts at the beginning, and then you run out of the year by the time you get maybe to, you know, World War II, or you rush through certain periods so you can get places. So, and I wonder what the contemporary benefit of that is. Um, In other words, shouldn't you go backwards and therefore um, spend less time on some portions of of prehistory, which are less important than modern history? So that's one proposition, and, and you can argue I mean, obviously, it depends on how you choose to frame the way you teach this history. But the other is, if you begin with the end in mind, then you elevate voices along the way who were sublimated in their time. 
And so I think of uh, good old Governor Morris at the Constitutional Convention, who stands up and gives an incredibly eloquent um, denunciation of those who would seek to write a liberty document based on the enslavement of other human beings. And this is important because it is possible in the moment to stand up and say and do the right thing and have the right view that's in keeping with the values at the time. So that that's another way to think about this. On the other hand... GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.